Amen. Thank you. Remain standing as we, uh, well, we don't read the Word of God this morning. I, I'll just go into a prayer. I'll let you be seated if you don't mind, and uh, we'll just have a word of prayer. I'm reminding you that tonight we will have the Lord's table. It's the uh, first Sunday of a new month. How many of you remembered that? First Sunday of a new month. Okay, good. We are in March, and uh, it's, uh, it's beginning to feel that way with the gusty winds more often, but uh, let's be faithful to the Lord's Supper. You know how I feel about it. We need to be prepared in heart for observing the Lord's table. I hope it's not an afterthought. I know that we don't subscribe to the heresies of transubstantiation and consubstantiation, but let's not swing too far the other way. And uh, we, when we come, we say, oh yeah, it's the Lord's Supper. Uh-oh, we've defeated the purpose, if that's the way it is with you. We need to draw near to our Lord, examine our hearts, because if we grow weary in our minds, uh, we will faint in our minds if we don't consider what Jesus did, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews. Let's go to him in prayer at this time, shall we? Our blessed Father, you have brought us safely through another week, and we just pause on this first day of the week as the hymn writer said, day of all the week the best, to reflect and to say, first of all, thank you. Thank you, as the psalmist tells us, for forgiving all of our iniquities. I wonder how many you've had to do this week. For healing all our diseases. Some have been down with COVID and flu and bad viruses, but you've raised them up. Thank you for redeeming our lives from destruction at times when we weren't even aware of it, may not know till we get to heaven, for crowning us with your loving kindness and tender mercies, just dropping those handfuls of purpose just because, for satisfying our mouth with good things. I don't think anybody's gone hungry this week. Father, you're the one from whom Every good and perfect gift comes down. And we just want to stop to say thank you. We'd be remiss if we didn't. But secondly, Lord, we do want to ask you to forgive us. In just a few hours, we will regather, many, most of us, I trust, to celebrate the Lord's Supper and commemorate the dying love of our Savior. And somehow, in light of that supreme sacrifice, all of our little hurts and the times when our honor is wounded and our motives misunderstood and perhaps maligned and misrepresented, that all just seems so insignificant. Oh, Father, help us to be able to overlook and love and forgive from our hearts and bury the hatchet in the light of Calvary love. Would you make it a true love feast tonight? May we be melted in our hearts and have first love rekindled. And then as we approach our conference, Lord, we ask you as the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers and thrust them forth to the ends of the earth, to the unreached places, but also, Lord, we ask you to do that into the neighborhoods of our Jerusalem right here in Raleigh. Would you touch hearts to serve your church right here at Friendship and to do it as under Christ. That when he comes again, and we know not when that will be, he will not find any of us 
standing idle in the vineyard. Please, Lord, make us heartily willing to suffer and bear his reproach that we might hear his well done. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We will stand again and sing again. Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. Let's sing that together. Rise up, O men of God. 662 in your hymnals, if you'd like to use your hymnal. 662, the words are there for you on the screen. Rise up, O men of God. Rise up, O men of God. be seated. All right, an abbreviated uh, song service, and we love to sing. I, if you're visiting with us today, I hope you don't get the idea that uh, we just uh, <laughs> condense the, the song service like that normally. Uh, come back, and you'll see we, we spend a little more time in worship and praise than that, but uh, we do want to take, give time for the uh, uh, service presentations at the end, and we're just praying that God will raise up people to fill some important positions around here. But we'd love to recognize our visitors. Last week, a visitor was a, a guy I hadn't seen in many years and went to high school with. I never know sometimes. I'm glad he let me know, but sometimes I never know who's going to show up uh, as a visitor. But if you're here for the first time at Friendship, would you lift up your hand? Let us see who you are. First time visitor in our service? Yes, right here in the middle. God bless you. Uh, thank you, ladies. Keep your hands up to, I think our usher knows where you are, but he, we want to make sure you get a card. Wonderful. And uh, please just fill that card out and, and give it to an usher, or you can get, put it at the uh, Guest Services Center out in the Welcome Center. We are honored to have you today. Thank you for coming. Anybody else? First time guests? All right. Wonderful. Well, praise the Lord. We encourage you and remind you about the offerings. I don't always say something about it, and I don't usually have to, but uh, we will have uh, the boxes mounted on the walls as you leave today to give your offering if you have not done so already. And children, if you are uh, allowed, permitted by your parents to uh, go to junior church, children's church, you may do so right now if you haven't already. All right. They are eager to go. Some of them are running out the door. All right. Take your Bibles. Let's turn to that passage we were studying last week, and we'll continue this little mini-series, finish it today, God willing, Exodus chapter 21, Exodus 21. We are so repulsed by the connotation, the very connotation of the word slave. We have a hard time understanding 
the meaning of the Greek word translated servant in the New Testament. As I mentioned last week, and I want to emphasize again today, when you see that word servant, especially in the New Testament, it is not talking about some kind of dignified butler figure. Like, how many of you remember Mr. French in Family Affair? Okay, you're dating yourself a lot. Of, see how few raise their hand? They, they just don't go watch those things at all anymore. But he was kind of the proverbial, you know, classic servant. And it may offend our modern sensibilities when God refers to us as doulos, but it really means bond slave. One who has no rights, one who is accountable only to God, one that Christ owns as his own, one who is helplessly dependent upon him. We must understand that, even though our sensibilities are offended by that because of the Civil War and, and one man owning another, which God never intended to, to be the case. Let's keep that in mind as we read this passage, shall we? Verse 1, now these are the judgments which thou hast or shalt set before them. God wants Moses to tell the people this. If thou by an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him unto the judges. This was a public thing. He shall also bring him to the door or under the door post, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall serve him forever. Curious little ritual. I have no idea how many times it was performed. But it reminds us of the privilege it is to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We would not go free if we could. We are tied to Christ with cords of love, not shackles of iron. He has redeemed us, amen? We are twice His, by right of creation and by right of redemption. Every moment and every movement, we are His to command. But His yoke is easy, and His burden is light, and we rejoice to serve Him. And that attitude has to be foundational to what we're talking about today and what we're hoping to accomplish we're getting people to serve in our church. And I'm not, I'm not just trying to do a hype job. I'm trying to get you to see what the Bible really teaches. All this and more we will get into this morning. It's so beautifully illustrated in this hypothetical case of the indentured servant, a fellow Hebrew that fell into debt or fell upon hard times. And he sold himself to his Hebrew brother. In the seventh year, he was entitled to go free. But he didn't have to. 
If he loved his master and wanted to serve him, he could do so. And it's interesting that the words are used forever. Why didn't it say for the rest of his life? We'll talk about that. Last week we got so far as to establish that wholehearted service to Christ's church, his body, is the test of our love for Jesus. If we love him, we will not only keep his commandments, but we will feed his sheep. That's what Jesus told Peter. What did Jesus himself do? He set the example for us in John chapter 13. Took off his outer clothes, he girded himself with a towel, he had a basin of water, and he washed, he knelt down, and did the job of an abject slave and stooped to wash his disciples' feet. By the way, none of them, none of the eleven offered to do it. And he was the master. And then he followed up his act by saying, now you've seen what I've done, this is what I want you to do. I want you to wash one another's feet. We don't take that literally. There are some churches that do. There are some foot-washing churches. There are some foot-washing Baptist churches. They mean well, but that can often deteriorate into a ritual, and we really miss the lesson and apply it to the rest of our life. Now, I have to tell you, when we uh, do that, if we really love Jesus, such service will not always be understood and appreciated. And for those of you that are contemplating doing something here at Friendship, I just want to remind you of that. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer. God knows I'm not. But as you've heard the little uh, rhyme, it's, it's true, it's not just humorous. To live above with saints we love will be endless glory. But to live below with saints we know well, that's another story. And often we find that to be true. We must rest satisfied in knowing when we serve the church that we're serving our master, and if he's pleased, that's all that matters. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 40, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, the least one in the church, Jesus said, you've done it unto me. That makes it big league stuff. Well, we noticed several things, a couple of things from this passage last week. The fact that we are the bond slaves of Jesus Christ and that uh, we choose not to go free. But what else can we learn from this passage? Do we just want to serve Jesus for six years and then that's all we have to? We put in our time and and we do what we want to do. I think you know that's not what this passage is teaching. The third lesson about serving Jesus and serving His church is this. To serve Christ acceptably, we will have to suffer. We will have to suffer pain. To have that ear bored meant that there would be blood that was shed. And although the ear may not be the most, the earlobe especially may not be the most pain to have pierced when it's pierced as other parts of the body, still there was pain, there was blood. 
and the slave would have his ear pinned against the doorpost, and his master would take an awl and drill a hole through it into the doorpost. Now, for many, many years, primarily girls and young ladies have gotten their ears pierced surgically with varying degrees of pain, depending on the method used. And usually this procedure is followed by the insertion of some kind of ring jewelry so that the hole does not close up again. And so many of you are familiar with pierced ears. But notice that this procedure had to be done in public. It had to be done before the judges. That tells me, among other things, that Christ doesn't own secret disciples. He wants us to go public with our submission to Him, our confession of faith, our, the seal of our submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. May I remind you, Jesus said, if we are ashamed to confess Him before men, he will be ashamed to confess us before his Father, which is in heaven. So the thing I want to talk about for a while is this. Though we have to suffer when we serve Christ and serve his church, we'll be called upon to suffer. We suffer with Christ. What a privilege. This was not the first time in the book of Exodus that blood being splattered on the doorpost is found. You remember the first time? It's in connection with the ritual of the Passover, the celebration of the Passover. The beginning of months, life begins at Calvary, we often say, and it's based on this. A lamb was chosen 10 days ahead of time. It was kept up, and then it was slain between the two evenings, and the blood of that lamb had to be splattered on the, door, the lintel and the doorpost using a little shrub known as hyssop. It still grows in the Middle East as you're coming over the Mount of Olives and coming down towards Jerusalem. You'll see it growing out of the sides, the, the blocked up terrace sides of, of the Mount of Olives. It symbolizes faith, hyssop. Now the, do the doorpost symbolizes the cross by which we are crucified with Christ unto the world, and by which the world is crucified unto us. We often decorate the cross, we glamorize the cross, and I appreciate the beautiful, beautiful cross behind me, but please don't misunderstand. I think it's a fitting symbol of Christianity, but please don't let that cause you to fail to remember the cross is something ugly, something brutal. It symbolizes death. That's what it meant for Jesus, and that's what it means for every follower of Christ. And just as it was through the Holy Ghost that Christ offered Himself without spot unto God on the cross, listen, so it is through the Holy Spirit that we do mortify or put to death the deeds of the body. We read in Romans 8, 13. That's not very glamorous. But that's the reality. This boring of the ear left one marked for life. What did the Apostle Paul say 
In Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, from henceforth let no man trouble me, or cause me trouble, it might be rendered in your Bible. Why? Here it is. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul was a genuine slave of Jesus Christ. He did not think that he was better than his master. He did not think that he was greater than his Lord. The Apostle Paul bore scars all of his life to prove that he was persecuted for Christ's sake. They were not self-inflicted. Just as Jesus still bears in his hands and feet the marks of your sin and mine. And he will for all eternity. Please don't think I'm riding a hobby horse when I say what I'm about to say. Here in America, we've got it so easy. It's so cushy here. And sometimes we complain when we suffer in the least little way. That's why it's good to take a mission trip sometime. I was on the receiving end of people coming down for mission trips for a long time. And I'll never forget how some people, you could tell they'd had it cushy. I mean, if they got a splinter in their finger doing carpentry work on a mission trip, they complain. They could hardly take it without their AC or their Serta mattress. They'd cry, ick, ick, if they got a little dirt or grease on their hands. Are we willing to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ or not? Paul said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Bear with me a little longer. I want to show you something wonderful, I think. I would be remiss in talking about this ritual described in Exodus chapter 21 if I didn't mention how David, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, refers to this in Psalm 40. Would you take your Bibles and turn there? Psalm 40. Maybe you've memorized Psalm 40. Our choir sung songs using the wording of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined unto me. He heard my cry. Talks about the miry clay, the horrible pit, the new song of praise. Wonderful, wonderful words that we should be able to incorporate in our own worship. But look at verse 6, Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Would you underscore the very next phrase? Mine ears hast thou, what's the word there, class? Open. That literally means dug. It's referring to this ritual. Mine ears hast thou dug, hast thou bored. And this is a messianic psalm. This is talking about Jesus. Isn't it amazing? Our Lord speaks of himself as having his ears bored. Ears plural, not just one, both. Jesus always goes further than we do in consecration to his Father. Isn't it wonderful that the King of Kings would become the slave of slaves? Isn't it wonderful that he would make himself of no reputation and take upon him the form of a, not a servant, but a doulos, a slave, and be obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. Christ served for 33 and a half years in a body 
prepared by God. And actually, this phrase in, uh, in, in Psalm 40, verse 6, is rendered in Hebrews 10, verse 5, not mine ear hast thou opened, but it's rendered, a body hast thou prepared for me. Jesus had to be in a body to suffer, in a human body. It speaks of his incarnation. And in that body, he laid down his life on a Roman gibbet, his last act of obedience to the Father. And that which is said here of the Hebrew servant who refused to go free can definitely be said of Jesus. I love my master. Who is his master? The Father. I love my wife. Who's the bride of Christ? The church. I love my children. Who are the children? Those born of His Spirit. Aren't you glad, and I mean this sincerely, aren't you glad that Jesus would leave heaven, but He would never abandon us? He would die, but He would not deny His people. That's how much Jesus loves the church. Christ's ears were dug. They were pierced, as it were, that he might by his own voluntary choice be the slave of God forever. And I remind you, as we said last week, he could have gone free, just like this servant here in Exodus 21, this indentured servant. I think about Christ when the virtual army of people came, and you would have thought he was a terrible insurrectionist. They came to arrest him in the garden, and they said, and he asked, whom do you seek? Let these go free. When they said, Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am. You say, no, he said, I am he. No, in the original, he said, I am. And when he spoke those words, referring to himself as the great I am of the Old Testament, it paralyzed the army that came to arrest him. They fell backward to the grounds, backwards to the ground, totally helpless, and he could have made them remain comatose while he got out of there. But he didn't. He went to the cross. He told Pilate, you would have no power at all if it were not given you from above. And he testified that he could have called down 72,000 angels to deliver him. Do you realize the power of just one angel? One angel in the Old Testament slew 185,000 soldiers that were the enemies of God's people. Just one. Jesus could have called down 72,000. He testified, no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power. I have the authority to lay down my life, and I have the power to, or the authority to take it up again. That's to be resurrected. But he had to choose servanthood and suffering to get to the other side of the cross, the resurrection. And I did check the back of the book before I got up here this morning. I did some reading in Revelation. And I'm glad I can tell you we're on the winning side. We win if we're with Jesus. But are you willing to die to self? Are you willing to be crucified with him so that his resurrection life may flow through you? Or will you be like so many who profess to be saved, who are so touchy, so super sensitive, 
so fleshly, so pampered, so demanding of their rights. And they end up, because they're trying to save themselves, they end up losing their lives, as Jesus talked about. I challenge all of us to follow the example of our Savior in this matter. It is high time to heed the admonition of Hebrews 13, verse 13, especially in our day of compromise and weakness. Let us therefore go forth unto Him without the camp. That means outside the camp, even the professing evangelical camp sometimes, bearing His reproach, His insults. Are we willing to do that or not? What a privilege it is to suffer with Jesus. His presence with us in the fiery furnace, just as it was with the three Hebrew children, is an inestimable privilege. So then, let us be as the apostles in the early church. When they were threatened, when they were beaten, and finally they were released, the Bible says in Acts chapter 5, they departed from the presence of the council of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. They departed rejoicing. What's wrong with those people? How can they rejoice? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. What a privilege to suffer for Jesus. What a privilege to fill up or to complete that which is lacking of the sufferings of Christ. Again, I say we know so little of that in America. We squeal when we get a little splinter in our finger. I think of a national pastor back when China was completely closed to the West, or virtually closed. When missionaries and pastors were finally able to go to China for a time, they talked with this man. He'd been in prison for 24 years for his faith as a pastor of a small house church. And they said, how would you characterize those 24 years? This is what he said. I, I, I heard from one of the pastors that went and interviewed him. He said, that dear man, though he bore in his body the marks, he was emaciated. He said, that was my honeymoon with Jesus. I think the three Hebrews had a honeymoon with Jesus in the fiery furnace, don't you? Christ is looking for some slaves who would be willing to suffer with him. What, could you not watch with me one hour? He said to the inner circle, the triumvirate, Peter, James, and John. How much more could he say it to us? He's looking for some who will still be willing to witness for him. If the door is slammed in their face and they're accused of trying to cram religion down somebody's throat. That's about all it takes to scare some people away from knocking on a door altogether. But then there are those who say, my Savior endured so much more than that. He shed blood for me. He was crucified by those He came to save. How can I, let, how can I be intimidated by that? Christ is looking for some who will bear False accusation from others like Job did even from Satan. Satan said to God, 
Well, of course Job will serve you. You've got his, bud, his bread buttered. He knows who his master is, who's taking care of him. But just pull all of that stuff out from under him and he'll curse you. And So God did. God pulled everything out in one day. Job lost his family, he lost his health, he lost his wealth. And guess what? Even though his wife tried to get him to do it, Job refused to curse God. The Lord's looking for some people like that. Satan is a liar. And just as he lied about Job, he lied about Jesus. Through the lips of the ruling Jews in, the, in, in Jesus' day, and, and they said, you cast out demons by the power of the prince of the demons. How wicked. How wrong. And yet Jesus refused to be intimidated. He didn't stop casting out demons and rescuing souls from the clutches of the prince of the darkness just because of that intimidation. I'm saying, beloved, it's, it's not in vain when we suffer with Jesus. When we travail in birth, souls are born into the kingdom of God. If we suffer with Him, we shall also reign with Him. But we not only suffer with Jesus in this matter of serving Him, we suffer for the truth. Can I make a statement and then I'll explain it. As we think of this ritual here in, in Exodus 21, I would rather have a hurting ear than an itching ear. The Bible describes the itching ear in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Would you turn there? The Apostle Paul is describing the rank and, and file of hearers in the last days with these words as he's warning Timothy and exhorting him to be brave and courageous and persevere. He said in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, after their own desires, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. We'll stop there, then we'll go a little bit further in a moment. Itching ears, what does that mean? I think you can use your imagination pretty well guess it. It's referring to people who will itch to hear what they want to hear. They will flock to certain preachers that scratch that itch, and they're all over Raleigh this morning. Please don't come to me and brag to me about the feel-good preachers who are so popular. I'm not jealous at all. I've been around a while and I see what happens to most of them. In fact, just this last week, a mega church that was the flagship church for the seeker-friendly movement just a few years ago closed the doors of its Chicago campus. Attendance had fallen off so bad, giving had dropped 45%, they can't afford to pay the mortgage anymore. And yet this was the church that for years as I was growing up and, and, be, and a ministerial student, this was the place where they were flocking to learn how it was done. Nobody's going there for that anymore. 
They were telling people how to attract seekers without offending them. You know, it's not just because of what happened this past week, but because of what the Bible says, I think I'm just going to go on preaching the whole counsel of God. I think I'm just going to go on preaching the unadulterated truth of the changeless Word of God, and if the shoe fits, put it on. And some will turn away their ears from hearing the truth. That's what it says in verse 4 there of 2 Timothy chapter 3. They will turn away their ears from hearing the truth and shall be turned unto fables. The word means myths. It's amazing how people all over are shutting their ears to the Bible. They're curious about other things. There's a revival of New Age mysticism and Greek philosophy and Neoplatonism. There are seminaries that are professingly evangelical and they're telling people it's not enough to to know the historical grammatical context of a verse. You need to understand the philosophy of the day. I know whereof I speak. They're curious about all this and spiritualism and as Justin Peters referred to it, though he didn't go into it, heavenly tourism, all the books and movies being made about people that spent, that uh, had an out-of-the-body experience, were clinically dead, went to heaven for 90 minutes or 28 minutes or something, came back to tell us about it. Best-selling books, they're living in wonderful homes. Listen, if we won't believe this book, we'll fall for that stuff. It's a whole lot more sensational. We turn away our ears from hearing the truth. The Greek verb there is active. It's interesting. The first verb is active. The second verb is passive. When it says, and shall be turned unto fables, that's passive voice if you understand your grammar. They're acted upon by an outside force. They become victims of falsehood. Beloved, I beg you, don't just curse the darkness. Turn on the light of the truth. It's the very nature of light to dispel darkness. And we're going to be called upon more and more in our day to suffer with and for the truth. Even as Paul said, I bear in my body the marks, so will we. It's going to hurt to stand for truth. It's going to hurt to serve in a church that stands for truth. Why? People don't want their ears hurting. They want them tickled. They want to be entertained. The last thing I want to leave with you this morning is this. We can learn from this story back in Exodus 21 that even in heaven we will serve our master forever. Amen. That's the last thing said in the whole story. The latter part of verse Six, when this uh, indentured servant says, I don't want to go free. I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. And then in the latter part of verse six, after he's had his ear bored through with an awl, he shall serve him forever. I marvel at that. Why didn't it say he shall serve him the rest of his life? Nobody lives forever except Jesus and those who are going to be raptured. Well, I think it's prophetic of what the Bible says in 
Revelation 22, verse 3. If you'll turn there, we'll read a few verses here. Revelation 22, verse 3, speaking of heaven, the new Jerusalem, and the residents there, the inhabitants. And there shall be no more curse. Oh, praise God for that. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And here it is, and His servants, His doulos, His slaves shall serve Him. You say, how long? Well, look at what it says in verse 5. It says, as long as the Lord God reigns, and they shall reign forever and ever with Him. Forever and ever. We'll serve Him. I'm glad of that. I'm glad we're not going to be just floating around on clouds, strumming on our harps. We're going to be doing something for Jesus. We will serve Him without stint. Verse 5 informs us as to why. It says, and there shall be no night there. In heaven we won't need to sleep because we won't get tired. It talks about the ones in hell. They rest not day nor night, but it talks about those four beasts that have eyes throughout them. Earlier in the book of Revelation, I think chapter 4, it says, and they rest not day nor night. I don't think we will either. We won't get tired. We won't have to pace ourselves. We will have entered into the ultimate Sabbath rest of heaven. We will serve Him, but our service will not be taxing. It won't be exhausting. It'll be exhilarating. Does that excite you? We'll serve Him without stint, but we will serve Him without sin. That's the fly in our ointment down here, isn't it? That's why so often our best endeavors are tainted with fleshliness. That's why so often we throw in the towel. Somebody doesn't treat us right. Somebody doesn't appreciate us. And we're out of there. I'm glad we'll be delivered from that in heaven. Won't be any of that in heaven. But let's face it, down here, our silver has a whole lot of dross with it. Our humility is still plagued with pride. Our best endeavors are tainted with fleshliness. As George Whitfield so famously said, you've heard me quote him a lot, but it's, it really speaks. He said, my repentance needs to be repented of, and my tears need to be washed in the blood of Jesus. Beloved, if we knew the plague of our hearts, we'd be more careful. Sometimes we wouldn't be able to say amen, we'd just have to say, oh me. But thank God, heaven is a place of perfect holiness. It's a place of absolute perfection. In Revelation 21, verse 27, I may have put the wrong verse down in the outline that you see, but look at verse 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it, into, it, into the new Jerusalem, that holy city of heaven, anything that defileth. Neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 30, that in heaven we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And then he said, we shall be as the angels of God. Have you ever thought about that? 
He's talking about the unfallen angels. He's not talking about the demons. He's not talking about the fallen angels. And what does the Bible say about the unfallen angels? They excel in strength. I told you about how just one killed 185,000 people. But they excel in strength. They do His will continually, hearkening unto the voice of His Word. We're going to be like that. We ain't there yet. My dear brothers and sisters, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But I think it's a holy exercise to meditate on what the Bible says we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is for the first time. And then and only then will we love Him perfectly and worship Him worthily and serve Him without stint. Nothing will limit us, nothing will hold us back because we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. If we weren't so dignified Baptists, we'd all be shouting hallelujah right now. A few years ago, it seemed like a few years ago, it's been a while now, I taught our children to sing this song as they as we serve the Lord together on the road. Maybe you remember it. Yes, while the ages roll, I'll keep on praising Him, for my voice will never tire or grow, and my song shall ever be, praise the Lamb who died for me, and I'll sing it while ages shall roll. We're not going to get tired. We're going to keep praising. We're going to keep serving. We're going to keep gazing on the face of the one who died for us and who bears in his body for all eternity the marks of our sin. Let's live in the light of that. If heaven itself will be sheer enjoyment because of our employment there, shouldn't we get practiced up down here now? Let's serve Jesus even now by serving His church, humbly, enthusiastically, incessantly, sacrificially. We won't regret that. I agree with the fellow. I don't know who, I tried to find who I could give credit to, but I, I agree with his sentiments. I don't know who it was. I'd rather be Christ's slave than the devil's free man. Let's pray. Father, please give us humble servants' hearts. May we treat the bride of Christ the way we would, we would treat the bridegroom, our Lord Jesus. Please enable us to see her the way you do, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, all glorious within. And as Christ delights to serve her, so may we because we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.